Hello and welcome to another episode of Spyglass. I'm your host, Jasmine Lee, and in the spirit of Halloween, this month we'll be taking a closer look at horror in Hong Kong. I'll be accompanied by Cyril Ma, Harbor Times reporter, sound mixing specialist, and cat connoisseur. This episode is split into two parts. In the first, we'll talk about Hong Kong's ghosts and the supernatural. Then, we delve into a true crime story on the real American psycho. If you're missing our usual political content, feel free to listen to any of our other episodes, which focus on political issues in the city. This podcast is available to listen to on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and more. You can support us for free by following us on our social media, or if you really love what we do, with your dollar on Patreon or with a one-time donation. All relevant links will be provided in the show notes. Ready to be scared? Let's get into it. so excited to do this episode i've been wanting to do a chatty episode with you for a while cyril so for everyone who hasn't listened to our last episode on the german reunification the 30th anniversary this is cyril he hosted that episode he's a reporter with harvard times he does fantastic work for us he also is a great sounding board for me to just talk at um when i am stressed at 3 a.m with work. So <laughs> so what are we talking about today, Cyril? All right. So because it is approaching Halloween, we're going to talk about haunted things in Hong Kong because that's absolutely what we need to talk about in Hong Kong. There's nothing else that's very serious. Yeah. <laughs> nothing else serious going on in Hong Kong. No, no nothing right? serious going on in Hong Kong at all. We're just going to talk <laughs> about ghosts. You can probably tell Cyril and I are joking. There's a lot still going on in Hong Kong today. If you need an update, you can listen to a previous episode of Spyglass that explores the national security law and protest-related conspiracies. Alternatively, our free newsletter provides weekly updates on the latest in Hong Kong. Check it out. Cyril is first going to tell me a bit about Hong Kong and ghost um, and folklore, ghost folklore, supernatural in Hong Kong. And that's going to be the first part of this episode. And then the second part of this episode, we'll be getting into a very grisly true crime story about the real life American psycho, um, which is, you know, the name comes after the famous book and cult movie starring Christian Bale. So we're going into that in a little bit but first yeah let's let's get into ghosts in hong kong so hong kong is for the most part as most of us believe it here it's a, it's a pretty haunted city lots of death has been going on over the past you know couple of hundred years and we consider hong kong being its own place sort of almost everyone is able to tell you about some ghost story that they know either they learned it at school or in my case um, i was always told my school was haunted and in year seven, part of the school's syllabus, we had a like a, a module on on the school's history. We would go ghost hunting with our teachers. Uh, this no is actually way. a thing. This, no, it's actually a thing. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> for my year, for my year, there was a storm on the day we were supposed to. And being year seven, they couldn't really reschedule it, so we didn't get the ghost hunt. But we would ask our seniors about it, and you know, we actually teachers take us around the school to what is supposed to be the most haunted rooms, and you know, we were basically, you know hang around and see whether we get um scratching on the door at night or something right you guys would go at night like you guys would plan around nah, well i mean personally i've tried 
uh, once or twice during like nighttime events. I've gone to like one of the computer rooms um, in the old building. Now it's a computer room. A hundred years ago, it wasn't obviously. And that room is supposed to be very haunted. There are some teachers report scratching sounds coming at night, sort of they're working late, just coming from that one room and a couple of the staff rooms as well. So luckily I haven't seen them, but you know, teachers have told us about it, right? So yeah. Do you, do you ever think the teachers kind of like played it up or like hammed it up just for the, just to give you oh, guys yeah, totally, a totally. So the, in year seven, our history teachers would definitely play it up for the fun of it. But there have been some teachers that we know to be very skeptic and they'd be like, you know, I was walking past the room at night and I felt something and I was just right. I'm packing up my stuff. I'm going home. I'll come back in the morning with there fewer ghosts. It's just sort of part of the local culture, really. You know, there are certain places we know in Hong Kong to avoid because of um, that place supposed to be haunted or that place just isn't very auspicious and whatnot. You know, certain temples that we, you know, when we enter a Chinese temple, uh, we know certain ways of acting around it. And it's not just out of respect. It's also so that, you know, you don't get something supernatural tailing you on the way home. So does how much does auspiciousness tie into the supernatural in Hong Kong? Um, it depends how much you separate them. Auspiciousness, you know, the, the belief, um, you know, of luck and, and feng shui or whatever, that is very much just part of local consciousness. Uh, the government sometimes does make decisions on buildings based on um, whether or not it's going to be auspicious. Uh, so there are, a couple, there are a couple of residential buildings built over the past decade or two that uh, have big holes in the middle. That's supposed to let the dragons through. Oh, Dragons. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let, let the dragons through. Um, and, but if we think of more the supernatural as in what we would, you know, consider uh, when we're speaking English as, you know, ghosts, zombies, and, you know, all, all that sort of, you know, haunted stuff. Murray House, which was the old government headquarters, uh, was moved to Stanley um, a decade or two ago. And um, supposedly uh, the government had to hire an exorcist several times because of how haunted the building was. It's now an upscale mall and uh, very, very few supernatural issues now. So I guess the exorcist did a good job. I mean, I think gentrification is the true exorcist. It is the true exorcist. Ghosts don't like Ghosts don't like No, absolutely don't. They hate gentrification. I think I think we've solved all the problems to supernatural disturbances. Yep. All yep. we have just, to do just is rebuild gentrify. the graveyards. Just rebuild the graveyards. <laughs> Right. All we have to do is gentrify, and there goes all our supernatural woes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there um, even outside of sort of the past few years or whatever, and outside of my personal experience, there are lots of places in Hong Kong that are named after things that probably aren't very auspicious. Right? There are lots of places in Hong Kong named after urban legends and ghost stories. It's probably something you don't see in many parts of the world where, you know, these sort of stories just sort of get lost, right? Or people think you can't name somewhere after these things. Or they don't stay very long, but places like Bride's Pool, which is a very popular hiking spot for expats and locals alike near Tai Po, is named after an urban legend where a bride was on her way to her wedding and she fell from her sedan chair. So she drowned and her body was never found. And to this day, people report sightings of a woman wearing Cheng Sam nearby in Mirror Pool. So people still go there all the time. <laughs> don't know That's why. Cool. Jeez. And that's also a, it's a very common trope as well, sort of girls drowning um, either before meeting a boyfriend or before uh, getting married. Um, there's a story passed around a Chinese university, which is that a girl was going to elope with her boyfriend one night. 
but she drowned in the pool, uh, the lotus pool at the university. And so now her ghost goes around asking boys coming at night what time it is. And if you tell her that it's 10 o'clock, which was the time she was to meet her boyfriend, they drag you into the pool and you die. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so spooky. It's quite a common trope. Right. I know there are, um, just from the a bit, of, a bit of reading that I've done on Hong Kong ghost stories, there are common tropes in some of these stories. And in the, there's this paper, this article by this professor at Chinese University, where he explored the tropes and kind of drew themes of like sexuality and dating into the themes found in these stories. I don't know if I was convinced by it, but it was interesting to read. <laughs> That's for I mean, sure. I, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced considering the, the number of stories of girls drowning in pools that we have. Those two are more famous probably because they are more grisly and because the students around the university still tell these stories. Bride's Pool is famous partly because it's so popular. Um, there are a couple of these stories that have largely been lost to time, but we can tell from how many there are that, you know, there's, there's, there's something to it. If I give one more, uh, Tatsimoy, Seven Sisters and North Point. We still have a Tatsimoy Road and a Tatsimoy um, Post Office. Right? That's an urban legend of seven sisters who had vowed to stay with each other their whole lives. But then one day, one of them uh, was forced into an arranged marriage. So in the middle of the night, all seven of them got together and jumped into Victoria Harbor. And the next day, locals said that they saw seven stones on uh, the harbor front. And they called them sort of seven sister rocks, saying oh that God. their souls have come back. Now... The seven rocks have gone because of reclamation. We, we've completely bulldozed over their eternal resting spot. How, how great of gentrification saves the day once again. I, I, uh, I know. It's, it's gentrification. I think that any from here on out, every ghost story, every horror movie can be solved with gentrification. The p magical powers uh, that be. That, that should, it should be the case, but the story I'm going to tell later, you'll see how gentrification did not solve it. But we'll get to that in a bit. Oh, I'm excited to hear it. I think before we continue, we should lay out the groundwork because some of our listeners are probably just like, these two people must be crazy. I mean, especially for me, when I first heard you super casual, how casually you talk about ghosts, like integrated into your life, that I'm not, I mean, I didn't necessarily think you were crazy, but that definitely is just not something um, I come across so often, I guess, in my upbringing in Canada and just in general in my day-to-day -day life. So I wouldn't necessarily label myself a believer, but I wouldn't say I'm a skeptic. I would say I'm a skeptic, but I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go running around spots where there have been a lot of cases of, you know, ghost sightings, uh, creepy things happening, just because I'm a scaredy cat. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much, I'm very much of the more quote-unquote realistic view of things but at the same time I'm not going to mess around with something if it's going to if there's a possibility it's going to ruin my life but I know that you have you and your family definitely has an interesting uh background when it comes to the supernatural so uh tell me a little bit about more about that I think it's it's um to be honest most people in Hong Kong we do just quite casually talk about ghosts you know um every family has a ghost story of some sort for me, it's that my mom has always said that she could see ghosts. Um, my dad very rarely said that he could see them, but occasionally he would mention, oh, yeah, no, there was a, a ghost at the office. I'm like, okay, 
I could never see them growing up. As a kid, I would say to my mom, mom, if you can see ghosts, why can't I? And she would just say, you don't want to. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> that would always that would always be the answer. Um, that is so ominous. Course, like I sort of I went to quite a westernized education growing up. I went to international schools, so I get what you mean when you say in Canada or in the West, there's just it's not so often talked about, or at least it's not talked about in such a casual way. So I had this idea that maybe my mom was like bullshitting me my whole life until it was after my grandmother died, and it was at the sort of we had a meal after the funeral, and. She and my aunt, so her sister, suddenly very angrily just says on the other table, some people think they can see ghosts. And they go to like, uh, you know, they go to priests and they go to you know, a bunch of feng shui guys and they give them to hold you know, uh, a deer bone in one hand and a skull in the other and say, this is how you're going to see ghosts. You can either see ghosts or you can't see ghosts. We can see ghosts and we don't want to. Oh, and they had no one listening. So they were just chatting about you know, my, my grandmother's death. And they just suddenly went on this rant about people who pay to see ghosts. And they want nothing to do with it. Essentially, yeah. And it was at that point when I was like, oh, wait, like there's no one here for them to be acting to. Right. Um, so either my entire family's insane or they truly, <laughs> truly believe they can see ghosts. I mean, it's it's funny because I think to a certain point, even the part of me that may believe in ghosts, I just think, okay, if they're out there, I'll accept that. I just want personal space. Like they mm. can do their own thing. I'll do my own thing. Real life, my day-to-day, -day, terrifying enough as it is. So I think if we respect our, each other's distances, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. But it's just the spooky stuff. The fear of the spooky stuff definitely gets to me. From here, we should get into your personal story. Tell me all about that. So uh, I have a really good friend of mine who was like you, very, very skeptical, right? The guy has never believed in ghosts, never believed in the supernatural. But about about two months ago, right, he was biking from his home in Tai Wai to Tai Po. When this happened to him, he had just got a brand new bike a few days ago. And he's been like showing me pictures and was telling me how excited he was to like try this bike on a long ride. So he does his normal route, which is um, up Tolo Harbor. Uh, there's a biking path on Tolo Highway um, from Tai Wai, and it goes to Tai Po, and it goes all the way around. It basically goes up to Fan Ling. It's quite long. Um, he's biked around there, but he's never gone all the way to Tai Po. And being the guy who knows about sort of supernatural stuff, I've said to him, right, Tai Po is pretty haunted. You don't want to go there at night, and you don't want to really go there alone. There's lots of haunted places around there, right? So what's what? What is it specifically that's going on in Taipo that makes you go like, hey? It's, like, it's the, there, there are just a couple of areas which, unfortunately, he ran into, which we know not to go to. Are there? It's so they're just known to be unlucky. Uh, There's no specific story. There, 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 there is, and um, for the suspense, I'll go into that after I actually tell the whole thing. For yeah. Sure. So, um, so. He's also like, my friend's also a guy who trusts his technology a lot, right? So he's got his Apple watch on, right? He's got GPS and everything. And uh, so he has mapped out his route to Taipo and back. There should be nothing going wrong, right? And that night, out of nowhere, 2 a.m., he texts me going, and I'm basically quoting him now, something creepy happened. I disregarded your advice and biked all the way to Taipo thinking nothing was wrong. I got to this bridge, and on the other side is a forest, and to my left is the river. But my GPS led me into the mountain, which was fucking unreasonable, right? <laughs> and then he tells me soon yeah. after, 
that what happened was, so he's on this pathway and his bike breaks, his brand new bike just breaks. He's following his GPS. He gets to this weird route, which is not on Tolo Harbor, right? This entire path, the entire bike path is by the sea. He shouldn't have gone anywhere inland, but his GPS told him to go inland. So he goes inland. His bike breaks, brand new bike. Yeah? The brakes don't work. And his only choice is to go further into this creepy-ass forest or stop and turn out the other way. And he told me there was just this massive feeling of dread and a compulsion to keep going. What? And, and so he has like 10 seconds to decide because his bike is uncontrollable right now, right? It's, it, the bike, the brakes aren't working. He's just, he's just going, going, going. And then... He snaps out of it. He stops the bike. He turns around. He goes back on the Tolo Highway, right? And he continues down the ocean path, right? But the creepiest thing is that his heart rate monitor on his Apple Watch, the whole time that he left the bike track on Tolo Highway, there was no heartbeat. No record. And he shows me his map because he, he records all his bike journeys on his phone, right? A GPS during that time, no GPS signal. Oh my god! So he just got this like I need massive <laughs> gap between like when he went inland and when he went back out. It's just empty, no heart rate, no map signal, nothing. Oh my god! So it's I. So his. So it seems like his tech just it com- died completely died. But as soon as he gets back onto um sort of Tolo Highway, as soon as he gets back onto the correct path, it's back on. So. He told me that he was around like a creepy bridge in Taipo. So I'm like, creepy bridge in Taipo, where was it? I look at the map that he's shown me where, you know, he disappears allegedly. And I take a look on Google Maps and I find out it's near Mangwaikyu, which if we translate into English is sort of the bridge with many ghosts. Oh. Right? Oh. Yeah. So this is one of those spots where I was like, you don't want to go to Taipo. Because this is there. Oh, right. yeah, no. yeah. Uh, so, what, are you getting? In, are you going to tell me the story behind this bridge? So there are lots of stories behind this bridge. Lots of urban tales around it. Uh, originally, it was called Hongshoki, which means the two meanings that we can get from that: either the bridge that floods, or the bridge of red mm. water. Oh, and, oh, and, oh God! <laughs> and um, so. The, the idea is it's called the bridge that floods because that area is very prone to flooding, very prone to landslides. And there's a bridge over it. And that's why it's, you know, the, the flooding bridge, basically. Now, there is an urban legend of why it would be called the Bridge of Red Blood, which was that a long time ago, during the Second World War, apparently that area used to be a Japanese uh, sort of army camp. And then during the war, the Japanese executed a bunch of people. And then the water, so the blood, right? Uh, washed into the sea and made the water there red. And so then starting from there, some villagers said they heard sounds of soldiers marching at night. But we don't actually know if any executions actually were carried out there. So that's a very, very old urban legend. But a more certain one happened in 1955. This is very well documented. A group of students and teachers from St. James Settlement uh, were on a field trip. And suddenly there was a very heavy rainstorm. So all of them went to take shelter under the bridge when suddenly a landslide happened. And essentially the whole class died. 28 died. Very few survived. Right? Oh, my. Yeah. This is a documented what? thing. So this is an urban legend of some Japanese soldiers marching around. We know this thing actually happened. But since then, people have oh. started seeing ghost sightings there. Right? 
um, there's there's a saying around the area like if you see children near Mangwaikyo, ignore them. You'll see children playing around there all the time. Oh my god. Um, yeah. Oh my god. No, 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 absolutely not. No, no, no. There you will is, not catch me dead going like anywhere. There is where. a plaque. There's, oh, a, no. there's a stone plaque that was built after the accident by the villagers to placate the ghosts, right? Because, it, you know, it's very bloody death. So then they, they built this thing. But regardless of whether that plaque was raised, there's still stories passing around. And now most of these stories nowadays come from drivers because you don't really walk by the area. So it's mostly, you know, there's a story of a minibus driver who was passing by and someone flagged, uh, this woman flagged down the minibus. So the driver stops, right? Uh, she gets on and ghost money is put into the payment box. So I'm not sure if you're aware, maybe our viewers aren't, uh, listeners, sorry, aren't aware, but... Uh, so in Chinese culture, they believe that after a person dies, they still need material wealth in the afterlife. So people would burn ghost money. So you buy this money from like a, a, a store that specializes in these things. You'd burn it, and then the money would go into the afterlife to whatever person he ascended to. So this driver gets ghost money in his payment box, right? And he yells, hey, woman, you know, pay the fee. And he looks in a mirror, and he sees there's no one else on the car. So then he's like, okay. Okay, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to keep driving, right? He keeps driving for a bit. And then there's a, there's a button on the car to call it to stop. And the, the signal is pressed. So he stops the car. And then he hears a woman say, thank you. I hate that. <laughs> so hate the other that. thing is don't pick up people around that. my IQ. <laughs> yeah. I hate that. So does your friend remember everything that happened between the time in the time that his GPS? Yes, and but the more he tells me, the more the story seems to not make sense uh, because he tells me now because he remembers it. He was passing through the same place several times. He passed by a temple. There shouldn't be any temples around there. That's one of the things. And he goes around, he says oh. he goes around the same tree oh several times. Um, and I'm going, okay, so uh, pretty, pretty creepy day, I guess. Uh, but he's since become a very strong believer in this sort of thing because he, um, now he keeps saying that he sees ghosts in the office. I'm not sure whether to believe him or not. It's funny regardless. Do you think he's like pulling I your leg? Do absolutely do not think this guy's pulling my leg. Um, this is not the sort of thing he jokes about. He's a man of science, but I mean, no way. Oh urban legends aside, we like I said, we do know that this bridge has some pretty bad vibes. <laughs> the The accident in 1955, St. James Settlement, that's only the first one, right? In, so oh, this is the bit, all right? Gentrification, gentrification. The bridge, the original bridge, <laughs> has been replaced, right, by a steel bridge. I think it's a steel bridge anyway. It's, a, it's been replaced by another bridge, right? But Accidents still happen around the area all the time, right? That area basically has one of the highest accident rates in the whole city. It's a bit insane, right? Uh, in 2018, a Taipo Road mm. bus accident, this is something you can search up. It's one of the deadliest traffic accidents in Hong Kong history. Basically, a double-decker bus completely flipped onto its side, 19 deaths. It was all over the news. It happened right about Chinese New Year. And where was it? Right around the corner from Mangwaikyu. Oh. Mm-hmm. I, uh... Oh. 
I mean, I don't think a steel bridge is enough. They're going to need to put a mall on that. <laughs> it's in the middle of a highway. We can't put a mall on it. It's in a highway. They're going to need to put like a Louis Vuitton, uh, <laughs> an Hermes. They're going to need to put a Forever 21. They're going to need to put all, I mean, Forever 21. Forever 21? These ghosts? Gone, but they're they're all kids. Like... <laughs> oh my God, no. That is, okay. I don't, I, I already have the heebie-jeebies. Um, okay. Even, even as a... A scared skeptic, I I have so many heebie-jeebies with this story. So, your friend now, what's going on with him aside from his ghost sightings? Nothing much. He's just become a very spiritual sort of person now. <laughs> I think. So he's been. He's transformed. absolutely been transformed after this one experience. He's completely. Well, you know, I don't want to go anywhere where it's old and full of ghosts. You know, he's only going to go into new malls now. Because he's a believer of gentrification as well, so gentrification is how he doesn't feel ghosts. I mean, I I don't blame him. I would, I would, I would. If I were him, I would do in like a five day, a five day overnight stay oh, in Causeway Bay it, and just allow that. Allow that. We work in Causeway Bay. Okay, but your it's funny because your friend's story reminds me of these these stories called Missing 411. If you haven't heard of it, there's basically this man named David David Politis and it's it's pretty popular on Reddit and there's a couple documentaries. So I believe that David Politis, I think he used to be a police officer and there were all these very mysterious cases of either people who went missing or either people who went missing for a bit and reappeared and just under very mysterious circumstances and just like very just very hard to explain just very mysterious very freaky um and of course there are always a bunch of ways to reasonably explain these stories but some of them are just really really strange and so a lot of these stories some people some people contribute their own stories of just they're in a forested area and suddenly they just feel like immense dread, which reminded me of what your friend said. Oh yeah, and, uh, they just feel immense dread they just into feel the forest. Like oncoming, like just immense, immense feelings of dread. Like something's just not right. So and also him just passing by a temple, even though apparently the area doesn't have temples. Just like weird things happening that don't make sense absolutely sounds like rings very similar to these missing 411 stories so if our listeners are into these kinds of uh stories or anything these are also true stories too this guy's dedicated a long time i believe years to compile these stories investigate these stories put them into a book series and has a couple documentaries i think you can watch one on youtube for free and then the other is on amazon prime so other stories like this they're out there and they're freaky and i don't know what to think of them i used to always hardcore believe that there is always a scientific explanation but i don't know sometimes there just isn't sometimes there just there just isn't an explanation that we have yet so and it's definitely (laughs) but i think i've i think i've had enough of the supernatural for now I'm pretty spooked, even though it's the middle of the day in Montreal. Oh, it's 1 a.m. here, so definitely could I mean, get some coming up to me. 
Oh, good God. Well, I mean, I don't know if this, I don't know if this is the belief in Hong Kong too, but there's the whole thing where like 3 a.m. is is the haunted, it's the most haunted hour or something. Um, I, re- I recall something like that. I can't remember the, whether it's 1 a.m. or 3 a.m. for me. Dad definitely mentioned oh, okay. something to me growing up. So you can't be awake at a certain time because there are going to be some witches, going to be some ghosts. So, all right. Go to bed then. Oh. Yep, just, just go to bed. All right, we'll try to we'll try to keep this to before three a.m. then, for your sake. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor. If you haven't heard of it yet, Anchor is life changing. Anchor is your one stop shop to record, edit, and distribute your podcast. Looking into the distribution, I thought that there would be a lot more involved, and Anchor does all that hard work for you. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listeners. It's that easy. All you have to do to get started is download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. So for those who have had to suspend their disbelief for the last for the last bit, allow me to introduce you to a story that is very horrifying, but very much real, unfortunately. And that is the real life story of the American Psycho. Well, the person in question isn't American. He's actually British, but it's called American Psycho because as I had as I had said earlier, there's a cult film and there's also a book. The book came first, of course, and the film is starring Christian Bale and it's about a wealthy investment banker who actually leads a double life as a serial killer. So this is what we're getting into today. This is actually a very, very grisly grim story. I listen to a lot of true crime podcast content and like watch a lot of uh, documentaries around true crime because I find this stuff very interesting and fascinating. But I do have to include a graphic content disclaimer. It's very disturbing. I'm not going to lie. Trigger warnings include explicit details of violence, gore, sexual assault, abuse, torture. So with that being said, I'm going to get into it. And Cyril, if you know what happens, let me know. But also, please spoil it for the listeners who don't. Okay. I might know. You might know because it happened. I might know. I might know. You might have. I feel like you would know. It didn't happen that long ago. Hmm. Late on Halloween night in the year 2014, at around 3.30 a.m. on November 1st, the police received a call from a man named Rurik Judding, saying that something had happened in his home. When police arrived at his luxury apartment in Wan Chai, also referred to as the Red Light District of Hong Kong, officers discovered a very grisly scene. They found a bloodied 12-inch knife, a number of sex toys in the apartment, and a 26-year-old Indonesian woman named Sinang Mujiasi, who was very, very near death. She had severe knife wounds inflicted to her neck and her buttocks. She was, as I said, horribly wounded, but still alive. But because of her condition, she died shortly after they found her. And Judding was arrested immediately. A few hours after the police initially arrived at the crime scene, they came across a large suitcase on the balcony of the apartment. So, Cyril, what do you think was in the suitcase? A body. All right. So that's your guess? (laughs) Yes, I'm guessing a body. Okay. So before I answer your question, allow me to introduce the man, Rurik Judding. As I said, he's British. 
He was born in Surrey in the UK in 1989 to a very well-off, well-to-do family, very wealthy. He had an IQ, has an IQ, of 137, so pretty intelligent. Very intelligent. Went to an all-boys boarding school called Winchester College when he was 11 years old. This boarding school's tuition was 34,000 pounds per year. I mean... Jesus Christ, right? right. <laughs> I mean... Right? <laughs> 34,000 pounds a year. I mean, I know both of us went to... Um, I assume your international um, high school private, right? Uh, international school private, generally. Exactly. Although so, we, we were sort of partly government funded about at that point esf was not anymore okay. though so both of us have educational background in private institutions i went to a private school but even though i did go to a very good private school it was not anywhere near thirty four thousand pounds per year no university for international students it cost me twelve thousand a year jeez to go oh. to university who also fun fact when his mother congratulated him on getting into this school, he was offended because his line of thinking was, how dare she even doubt that I would get in? Because Ooh. he just knows how smart he is. He completed high school in 2005. He went to Cambridge University and he graduated from Cambridge. And then he went to work for Barclays in 2008. From then on, he moved to work for Merrill Lynch in 2010. When it comes to what happened um, with his murder case, former classmates were surprised to hear what happened to him, but they described him as a quiet, quote-unquote, strange kid from some of them, arrogant, was a leader, not a follower, not very popular, had a superior air, and was, quote-unquote, detached. So some... You get an idea of who this guy was, I guess, I suppose, in the eyes of his former classmates. To give a bit of a background on his love life, he had a number of unsuccessful relationships, unfortunately for him, in both the, the UK and Hong Kong. At actually one point, he was engaged, uh, but so this was in the UK. He used to date a woman when he worked at Barclays. And she went to work in New York for a year, but unfortunately she cheated on him. And even though they tried to repair their relationship in 2012, they got engaged and it just didn't work out. So he broke things off. One year later, he was transferred, still with Merrill Lynch, but he was transferred to Hong Kong in 2013. And apparently his grandmother is actually from Hong Kong. So right. he does have some loose ties to the city. Before his move to Hong Kong, uh, apparently, according to his co-workers, he, they said that he was a fit young man with a brilliant mind. But apparently this all went down into a spiral after getting to Hong Kong. He was seen spending a lot of his time blowing thousands on nights out with girls and alcohol and other illicit drugs in Wan Chai. Sounds like a normal night in Wan Chai. Standard night in Wan Chai with the boys, right? Yeah, yep. Thousands so, of dollars on drinks. I mean, when beer costs you a hundred dollars a pint. <laughs> it's it's easy to get there. It's very easy to get there. So you have an idea of what his life is like before and up to his time in Hong Kong. So 
in while he was in Hong Kong, as you know, it's easy to take weekend trip to the Philippines. Flights are cheap, close by. So Judding started to go to the Philippines quite often, apparently making weekend trips out of it, to a place called Angeles City, which is Angels, City of Angels, which is also called Sin City. It's known for its sex tourism. And apparently by the woman who he spent his time with there, he was described as a gentleman and as a good guy. He was nice, kind, never rude or aggressive to these girls. He did have very short-lived relationships with uh, two women there. The first was a woman named Ariane Guari. They broke up. And then he started to see a woman named Joanna Mendoza. He never left a bad impression with these women. And his last girlfriend, Joanna, she claimed that she never saw him use drugs. And in fact, she was actually meant to visit him in Hong Kong a couple of weeks before the murder occurred. But he actually broke up with her via email before her visit. He said that he was too busy in Hong Kong. Very unceremoniously, it seemed. Even after finding out what he did, Joanna claims she still misses him and still wishes to see him again and apparently has even written to him while he was in prison. So she claims to have been in love with him even after all that happened and claims that she didn't love him for his money, although I'm sure that was a nice perk. But yeah, she she definitely seems to be in a little bit of maybe not denial, but she definitely has very firmly attached with the image of him that she she came to know. But Unbeknownst to these women in Sin City, he had an obsession with violence and sex and has pushed and crossed boundaries of consent when it comes to past girlfriends during sex. And I'll get into that more in a little bit. So in the days leading up to the crime, Judding had actually resigned from his job at Merrill Lynch, and he left an automatic reply on his work email that read, quote, I am out of the office indefinitely. For urgent inquiries, or indeed any inquiries, please contact someone who is not an insane psychopath. End quote. Oh, he left that there. He, he wrote left that. That. That, was, that was his automatic reply, his, his automatic oh, damn, email right. reply. So, you know, red flags a little bit. Back to the night of Halloween 2014. So a few hours after the police had initially arrived at the crime scene, they came across a large suitcase on the balcony of the apartment. And when police opened the suitcase, they found the body of Sumarti Ningsi. Oh, I got the right answer. It was you a got body. it right. You it were, was you a were right. It was a buddy. I've watched too many horror films. I know where this is going. You, you were unfortunately correct. Her name was Sumarti Ningsi, a 23-year-old. Her hands were bound behind her back and her head had been nearly decapitated. So very, very grisly and, and horrifying. Very, very horrifying. So with that, I'm going to get into a little bit about the victims. Both victims were Indonesian women and... As I said before, Sumarti Ningsi, who also went by the name of Alice, is 23 years old. And the other victim, who was the first one who they found, uh, was named Seneng Mujiasi. But she also went by Jessie Lorena, and she was 26 years old. 
They were both domestic helpers, and they were also both known to be DJs in Hong Kong. They took up some work here and there on the side. It's not 100% confirmed that they were sex workers, but all things kind of point towards that they, they did rely on sex work, which makes sense given the lives of domestic helpers in Hong Kong. And I would also just like to say that prostitution is technically legal in Hong Kong, but there are several limitations and restrictions that are imposed. Some of these regulations include that sex, sex workers must have Hong Kong residency, and only one person is allowed in one unit who can participate in prostitution. To keep things legal, apparently female prostitutes in Hong Kong usually work in a pattern known as yat lao yat fung. I could be pronouncing that incorrectly. It's like one floor, one woman. So that's... Yat lao yat fung. Yeah, exactly. So that's what they call it. And they often share an entire building in which each of them has one unit for their clients. Jutting met Alice or Sumarti Ningsi, in Wan Chai at a bar. Presumably, they went home together because he offered her money for sex, and apparently he was very violent and rough to the point where she demanded to leave, and she left. But apparently, he still called her up after. He really wanted to see her again. He kept calling her up and insisted that they see her, and he eventually offered a thousand U.S. dollars. A thousand U.S. dollars to... To a domestic helper, to to a foreign domestic helper, that is a ton of money. So especially for vulnerable people in her position, also keep in mind that these people like send they send back money to their families, right? So all the money doesn't just go to them. Apparently, Ningxi had called family days before her death, and apparently she said she felt like she was being haunted by a man named Rurik. She actually went to his place a few days before Halloween that year. And as we know, never made it back out alive. When she got there, he tortured her. He had her there for days. And apparently he was in a drug-infused state. Judding snorted enough cocaine to put most people into a coma for over a three-day period, along with a large amount of alcohol. And while he was torturing her, he used pliers, sex toys, a belt. Mm-hmm. He made her do horrible, horrible things, like eating feces out of a toilet. Um, and apparently she like made her lick the toilet. He urinated in her Ooh. mouth. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Okay. And <laughs> Very and graphic. She, it's, it's, I, I warned you. I, it's, it's yes, horrifying. It it's, it's, it's horrible, horrible, horrible. And at one point when she vomited, he made her eat that. So just an evil person. I don't care how much cocaine you snorted. You are a horrible person. The way he ended her life was that he made her lick the toilet and then he slit her throat and whispered, I love you into her ear. Oh God. And he continued, he continues to cut into her. He moves her body to the bathtub, and she was still alive, apparently, and he just continues to attempt to decapitate her. As we know, he didn't fully decapitate her. She was nearly decapitated. But this whole situation had turned him on. He was he was so excited and enthralled by what had happened, by what he'd done. And he takes out his iPhone. He starts filming himself after, and and he even gets footage of her of her body and says that this is the first person he's ever killed, um, admits oh, to 
really details what he's done um and that he really got off on it oh jesus he got so, off on it hey i bet yeah and so he wraps up her body in a towel throws it into a suitcase pops it on the balcony this wasn't enough for him right he went to a sex shop bought more supplies and then he went hunting for his next victim, which is when he meets Sinang or Jesse Lorena at a club. He goes home with her on Halloween night. And apparently when she got to the hotel, she noticed a bad smell in the apartment. And she texted her friends about it, saying that this is weird. There was a bad smell. But she stuck around. When they started to get intimate... Underneath, it was either the mattress or the cushion of the couch. She felt some hidden items, and then she found all these sex toys underneath. And this apparently agitated her. She got angry. I believe he freaked out. And he wanted what his goal was to keep her like he did with Sumarti and keep her as a sex slave. But because she got so agitated, his reaction was that he stabbed her in the neck and also inflicted those wounds on her buttocks as well. So apparently he was frustrated because he wanted to keep her alive, right? Yeah. But what ended up happening was that he had murdered her before he got the chance to do all of that. So he, he this entire time, he wasn't going to work or anything. He had already said he was a psycho, and then he killed two people after saying that at work. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't know the full details of how his relationship with his co-workers ended but my guess would be that things may have been a really bad ending so when his co-workers saw that email they probably just thought oh he was just messing around with you know so perhaps didn't do anything or didn't think mm -hmm. it was anything that they needed to look out for so after he committed his second murder, he did the rest of the drugs that were available to him. Apparently his reaction was so severe that he started to hallucinate, you know, sounds coming from his door, somebody trying to get into an apartment, which is to at that point when he called the police and told them that something had happened. And then, you know, the rest is history. And so back to the iPhone footage, there apparently was hours of him talking rambling uh talking about what he'd done how he felt about it i'll i'll read you a quote i have killed two the first one i tortured there will be no redemption for me but they are dancing with angels and some of the other statements they they kind of played with his his like both his, his dual personalities is what the article said uh apparently said at the time it felt really good yeah, it's good. I reduced her to a sex object. Then I realized, hang on, this is actually not that difficult or bad. This is illegal, of course. When you step back, you realize it's horrible, of course. He goes on to talk about how he's always had dark fantasies and that he felt sick but not guilty. So apparently a lot of it was very much just ramblings on and on and on. Mm. So he gave up this footage pretty quickly. I mean, it's he didn't try. he didn't really try to hold anything back. He admitted to the, um, the murders and handed over the footage. This brings us back to our American Psycho comparison. So in the movie American Psycho, there's actually, there's a scene where he murders woman in his apartment. So that's where the whole comparison comes from. This former friend said, 
No one can believe that Rurik seems to have turned into the real American psycho. He was taking cocaine with prostitutes in his luxury apartment, almost like he was trying to live up to an overtly masculine heterosexual stereotype, just like Bateman. Maybe he was living a lie with the prostitutes and something just snapped when he was with them. Wow. And yeah, it's it's heavy. It's really it, Yeah, heavy. yeah. It's just sort of just a bit speechless. I mean, I don't know how I missed that story. 2014, um, not that long ago. 2014, no, no, not long ago. I, I graduated high school that year. You think you would um, hear about something like that. You think you would, but the thing is, uh, this might be a conversation for another another day, but it's, I guess, murders of minorities in Hong Kong, right? Swept it's under not, the rug. Quite often, yeah. The, uh, the only one I can think of that got really big was uh, when a helper was tortured by her employer. Oh. Um, Edwina, whose surname I can't remember right now, uh, but that was all over the news because you know, the police arrested the employer, and then uh, she and a lot of her friends got her onto the media. It took a massive, massive push for people to actually take this seriously. She was uh, pictures of her completely beaten up. I mean, this is probably a pretty you know creepy story too in a way. You know, photos of her completely beaten up. She had, in the same way, been forced to basically. You know, forced to do things you really shouldn't do. She's a she's a helper, right? She's a maid. You shouldn't be treated like that. You know, she's there to help. Oh, but I digress. That, that that is another story. But apart from that, largely minority issues completely swept under the rug. We just don't talk about them. If you're not Chinese and you're not white, they just don't talk about it. They don't. Then they don't care. Unfortunately, yeah, which is very much the case not only with Hong Kong but so many mm. other places. The aftermath of the situation is fairly straightforward. He admitted to the murders, handed over the footage. Apparently he received a number of psychological evaluations and the psychiatrist who testified on behalf of him said that he suffered from narcissistic personality disorder and sexual sadism disorder, in addition to drug and alcohol addictions. The prosecutors um, disagreed with this assessment and prosecutors had said that he took the extreme amount of cocaine to gain, quote unquote, Dutch courage for the gruesome killing. And so in court, he actually pled not guilty to the murder charges, Ooh. but he tried to get it down to a manslaughter charge. Oh. So manslaughter charge under um, diminished responsibility due to drugs. And he tried to dredge up former um, experiences of abuse in school and also claimed that in his childhood he saw his father commit suicide so just a number of different reasons defense to try to get it down to a manslaughter charge the jury decided very very quickly that he was guilty of those two counts of murder so he received two sentences of life in prison in hong kong and he actually had did try to get himself sent back to the uk to serve a sentence there but that didn't work out for him. No, he committed a crime here, served a time here, isn't it? Yeah, so he is serving his time here. And apparently he wrote this apology statement. And in it, he says he's haunted daily, to quote exactly, by what he did. I've actually read his, or I've Ooh. I've read a snippet of his, of his apology. Um, and I mean, it's written very sincerely, but I mean, it's, I... He brutally murdered two human beings. I mean, it's regardless <laughs> of if you're if you're sorry about it now, but it's so so many so many issues here. It's so many issues. It's 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 whether or not was he actually was he actually insane? Did he actually have these disorders? And 
if if he did have these disorders, like what can we actually do about that? You know, I, it's interesting you say that. What can you do about that? I mean, I think it's fascinating that nobody really raised crazy warning signs. Like it, it really seems like a situation where he just snapped and went loose, triggered by drugs, triggered by his um, sexual fantasies, and took it out on these two poor women because. These women in Angeles City in the Philippines said that there there was nothing to be worried about. Apparently, he Clearly was very there nice. Was. Clearly, there was something we're worried about. I mean, a coworker who leaves who leaves his place of employment with that sort of automated reply in the email. Mm, yeah, I'd be concerned. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think that they're going to commit murder, but I'd be concerned regardless. <laughs> He actually did try to appeal his conviction twice in 2017. But I mean, the court of appeal just was like, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> you, you can't I mean, appeal something like that. You, you can't appeal that. It, it's, you, you need to be locked away is sort of thing, I think. Yeah, for the, rest, for the rest of your life. So his parents and his brother visit him in Hong Kong. And I don't know if his former girlfriend, Joanna Mendoza, has visited him yet. But as I said before, she has expressed interest in seeing him. Not sure if that still holds up in 2020. At his trial, there were protesters, migrant workers, who showed up to protest what had been done. They wanted justice for what happened to these two, uh, these two uh, as women. Well, as well, they should get it. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I don't, oh, I don't know if you would call it what he got justice, but I mean, it's the most that the Hong Kong law could do. Yeah, we um, don't know no death penalty. So given what happened, it's the most that could have been done. Mm. So he is serving time in prison will be for the rest of his life. And his actually. second life. And his second Two life. Two lives exactly. in prison. And that's where the story ends. that's all for this episode. I know it ends on a heavy note, but I think it's important to shed light on these stories because there needs to be more discussion on Hong Kong's disenfranchised, including sex workers and ethnic minorities. Even though this tale is exceptional in its brutality, its victims and countless others have had their stories swept under the rug, and they deserve better. Ji Tang and Midnight Blue are organizations dedicated to educating the public on sex work and eliminating the stigma surrounding it in Hong Kong. So please consider supporting them with your viewership or follow on social media. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll be joining me in the next episode of Spyglass, A Closer Look at Hong Kong. <laughs>